you know, that and that truly that accountability piece is so important, right? I, if somebody's going to ban my stove, I want to be able to know who that is and hold them accountable for banning my stove. So talk about maybe some other areas that that might play, play out in. Well, if that's what you want to do, Joe Biden or whoever the president has to be, that would be in front of Congress. And so if an, if an agency wanted to, to set some rule, an emissions rule, for example, or something like you have to have, you have to get rid of, we want to get rid of the internal combustion engine by 2030, right? Uh, instead of that actually being a thing, it would be presented to Congress before it would go into effect, as opposed to them doing it, a bunch of court challenges, and then several years later, you might get an answer, you might not. And so I think practically speaking, a lot of these regulations that people are frustrated by, that again, it, it feel, you know, people feel powerless in many ways to affect, it would actually put the ball back in the Article One branch to decide yes or no. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of American Potential. I'm real excited about this episode. You know, America is such a unique country because we have the opportunity to pick from multiple paths when it comes to what we want to be when we grow up. I'm still trying to decide. Uh, Today's guest grew up in a working class family where he saw the value of hard work. And his grandfather opened his own butcher shop and his dad worked seven days a week on the midnight shift to be able to provide for his family. He didn't grow up knowing any lawyers, but he knew that was the path that he wanted to take. He graduated from law school and he went on to work at a law firm and he made partner. He was continuing down the path he'd picked for his life until one day after a doctor's appointment for his son, who has epilepsy, is on the autism spectrum, and is nonverbal, they found out he also had a rare genetic condition that caused tumors on his organs. That's when our guest's path changed. He decided he wanted to run for office to be the voice for people like his son and their families. He's been elected to the Missouri State Senate, State Treasurer, Attorney General, and is now representing Missouri as a United States Senator. I want to welcome U.S. Senator Eric Schmidt to the podcast. Okay, Senator, why was your first bill that you introduced as a U.S. Senator focused on dealing with the administrative state? Well, you know, I came to Washington and one of the main goals here was um, not only just to to fight for for hardworking Missourians, but to dismantle the administrative state. And why is that so important? It just is really antithetical to the vision of the founders. I mean, they set up this system that spread out power, right? It diffused it both vertically and horizontally through a system of federalism and checks and balances and separation of powers. All of that was meant to protect individual liberty, right? They were students of history. They understood human nature and the desire to aggregate power and for people to not really be accountable. And that's what the administrative state has become in many ways, sort of this fourth branch of government. And if you want to understand, I think, Jeff, a lot of some of the frustration that's out there some of it's centered around the idea that, you know, you, you vote for people that you believe in and you send them to Washington and, and it feels like sometimes things don't change. Well, one of the reasons is you've got this huge sort of unseen branch of government, these faceless bureaucrats that control so much of people's lives. They're, you know, their liberty, they can affect their livelihood, their, you know, family run business. And so the Eraser Act was, was meant to, to as, a, as an initial step to rein that in, right? If you're going to propose a new regulation, you got to pull back three. And that'll do a couple of things. One is 
clear out some of the the regs that either should have never been there in the first place or outlived any any usefulness, but also get them thinking about, you know, issuing one in the first place, right? And then I think that's a step. You've got something called the RAINS Act, which I'm sure you guys have talked about before, yeah. which would actually make Congress vote on these things before they went into effect. I think that would get rid of about 90% of the nonsense. But look, if some agency wants to ban gas stoves, uh, Congress should have to vote on that. And I think that would add a certain level of accountability to where um, Congress is not blameless in this either. I think for a long time, people in Congress have said, I voted for this great bill, but I can't believe what this agency did. No longer. Uh, you actually have to vote on these things and people can hold you account on that. Well, and, and that's really important is the accountability of it. Let For people who may not understand, like you and I understand what we mean by the administrative state. Let's talk about that just a minute. So, so people know exactly what we're talking about. You talked about banning stoves or, you know, refrigerators, things like that. But that's truly what's happening is some of these interpretation of what Congress passes. Uh, let's talk about what it means when we say administrative state. Yeah. I mean, you've got these, all these alphabet agencies. In many instances, people have never heard of them, you know, but you've got, let's take, you know, the EPA or the Department of Labor and, um, or the Department of Education, all of these, you know, when you drive through Washington, D.C., all those buildings scattered everywhere, they're populated by bureaucrats for some agency. And their job is in many ways to come up with new and innovative ways that they make things more difficult. Um, there are some look, there are some legitimate things that that need to happen right for the for laws to be executed. But this has gotten way out of control. It sort of started with perhaps the worst president in American history, Woodrow Wilson, this progressive that kind of had this dream of a class of experts who knew better than the people. So if you think about this, really this struggle we're having between what we view as the elites and then the rest of us, this is kind of the basis of it. Um, and it, it's been supercharged over the years. Um, it's grown in, in both Republican and Democrat administrations, quite frankly. Uh, nobody's without blame here. And I think it's time to rein that in. I, I also think it's important to note for people as they imagine what this looks like, I think COVID in particular uh, really revealed um, what we had on our hands. When you have, you know, like, for example, when I was attorney general in Missouri, my, my previous job, we sued on the vaccine mandate, took it all the way to the Supreme Court, and we won, principally because OSHA, which was an agency created to make sure forklifts beeped when they backed up, uh, <laughs> somehow had authority to 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 force a medical procedure on 100 million people? No. And so, you know, you went on things like that. We also um, had the student loan debt forgiveness case, Missouri did, took that at the Supreme Court and won. A half a trillion dollars was saved for taxpayers because we argued nobody, Congress never enacted a law that gave the president the authority to go do this. And you don't just get to come in because you made a campaign promise to wipe away all this debt and, you know, put working folks at a disadvantage and with a stroke of a pen, go do it. So those are kind of some practical ways that the administrative state through, you know, the executive branch wanting to do things, but we got to reinstate this power back in the article one branch with Congress and with the Senate, because that's where, you know, the people are supposed to speak and where any authority really comes from by the consent of the governed. And ultimately, you know, they can hold me accountable every six years and hold a representative accountable every two years. You can't do that right now with the deputy undersecretary of the EPA. Nobody knows who that person is, and they're certainly not accountable to anybody. Is Congress ready to take this on? I mean, you know, this has been going on for so long. I, I do. I am concerned. I think there's leaders like you and Mike Lee, as Senator Mike Lee and others, 
who who do understand what what could happen here. You know, the Supreme Court just on January 17th heard oral arguments in the Loper Bright uh, case, the Loper Bright yep. Enterprises versus Ramondo. And, you know, we, we actually had one of the fishermen on that was involved with this case on the on this show last year. Case deals with something called the Chevron uh, uh, doctrine and or deference. I'm sorry. Explain Chevron deference. And if it gets overturned, how does that affect the administrative state? Yeah, I'm a little jealous, by the way, those cases. That was I wanted that case when I was aging. <laughs> uh, but, they, but the Supreme you, Court's you had, got it. You had plenty good ones, Senator. You I had plenty had some good ones. ones. Yeah, the Missouri versus <laughs> Biden free speech one is still out there, too. But, right. um, yeah, the, uh, the she- what Chevron deference is, in the 1980s, the Supreme Court essentially said, look, if, there, if we see any ambiguity, we're going to rely on, on the statutes. We're going to rely on the experts. We're going to rely on their interpretation as opposed to the courts reading the plain language of the statute. So what the Supreme Court now has in front of them, and, and I think that the ideal case um, is the ability to overturn Chevron and essentially say, we're not going to defer, which was a Chevron deference to these, you know, these bureaucrats on what this can mean, because it was just getting abused. It was, every statute was somehow ambiguous and every reg was reasonable. Uh, you know, and it's just not it's not realistic. And so it's a real opportunity to put the power back in the Article one branch. Now, there are many here in Washington, I'm sure, scared to death of that because uh, it, it would force Congress to actually make some make some tough decisions and be more prescriptive in the language that are in, that's in statutes. Um, and but I welcome that. I think it's it's not in the muscle memory of Congress anymore. Uh, but there was a time where this actually happened before you, you know, within the last hundred years, really, where the growth of all these agencies really came from. And uh, so anyway, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that they will take the bold step uh, to overturn uh, Chevron. And then I think it'd be a big part of the kind of structural changes that need to happen to make government more accountable to the people. So you talked about like banning stoves and that this would be something that uh, if this were to happen, Congress would actually have a say on this. Give us a couple, maybe a couple other examples where, you know, that, and that truly that accountability piece is so important, right? If somebody's going to ban my stove, I want to be able to know who that is and hold them accountable for banning my stove. So talk about maybe some other areas that that might play, play out in. Yeah. I mean, look, student loan debt forgiveness, Right. Congress should have to weigh in on that. If you want to forgive all this debt, uh, you know, we should have to actually vote on that. I think another example that's happening in real time is this, uh, you know, Green New Deal that that there was never the political will to really. I mean, they got some of this done um, with with some of the recent legislation a couple of years ago. But broadly speaking, this Green New Deal, uh, they didn't have the, the will in Congress to go vote on. They're just doing by way of administrative agency. Right. And subsidizing. Um, certain things over others, shipping jobs, you know, overseas and kind of this, you know, ongoing war against our natural resources and American energy. Well, if that's what you want to do, Joe Biden or whoever the president has to be, that would be in front of Congress. And so if an if an agency wanted to to set some rule, an emissions rule, for example, or something like you have to have you have to get rid of or we want to get rid of the internal combustion engine by 2030. Right. Right. Uh, right. Instead of that actually being a thing. It would be presented to Congress before it would go into effect, as opposed to them doing it, a bunch of court challenges, and then several years later, you might get an answer, you might not. And so I think practically speaking, a lot of these regulations that people are frustrated by, that again, it, it feel, you know, people feel powerless in many ways to affect 
it would actually put the ball back in the Article One branch to decide yes or no. And um, I think that would be a really, really important reform. It would it would reduce the size of government and get, get it out of the way in many ways. But more, more importantly, I think um, for people's trust um, and, and the feeling that, that they have a voice again. And there's two things in my maiden speech I mentioned, Jeff, on the Senate floor last year. The two real big threats to me, to the republic, are this, 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 these attacks on free speech. You know, people feel like there's a narrowing of bandwidth of things they can say or hear in the government and the Missouri versus Biden lawsuit that I filed. We've had evidence that the government colluding with and coercing, in many examples, some of the biggest companies in the history of the world to suppress dissent, to quell dissent. Um, that's a very un-American thing. And uh, I think that is part of it. And then also the, this administrative state. This is a behemoth of unaccountable folks that, that are, are kind of the ruling class. And we've got to dismantle that. Yeah, the, and the, just great work on both of those uh, issues. I, last year, the Department of Homeland Security tried to create this disinformation and governance yeah. board, but it, it was dismantled. If that board would have been allowed to remain in place, how could it have affected the flow of information and Americans' freedom of speech? Well, I mean, they were uh, I, honestly. I'm surprised how unapologetic and outspoken they were about this. Um, right. I mean, it's very Orwellian. I mean, it really was this Ministry of Truth, and whoever the person in charge, the Mary Poppins gal or whatever, uh, <laughs> um, you know, once this got exposed, it, they kind of pulled it back. But I will tell you, in the discovery in the Missouri versus Biden lawsuit, we, you know, this this is the a vast censorship enterprise. Certain, you know, spanning agencies people have never even heard of, like CISA, uh, but also Department of Homeland Security. We took the deposition of Anthony Fauci. So if you were online talking about, you know, questioning, you know, does the vaccine prevent transmissibility of 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 COVID? You, you know, the government was flagging these things, telling social media companies to deplatform people, to get rid of it, to silence people. Or else, if you don't do it, guess what? The government might open up an antitrust investigation against you. Or guess what? Uh, as one of the judges in, in the Fifth Circuit said, that's a nice social media company you got there. It'd be shame if you were under federal investigation. I mean, these are the kind of strong arm tactics right. that the government was using to censor Americans. And it's and look, we know that the government can't engage in censorship. That's, of course, protected by the First Amendment. But they also can't outsource that. And this is the new frontier that I'm sure this disinformation governance board uh, wanted to be involved with. It, it played out in the Hunter Biden laptop issue. You know, you had um, um, the FBI. Um, we took the deposition of Elvis Chan, who was an FBI agent who was telling, warning social media companies that there could be a Russian hack and leak operation involving Hunter Biden. And it turned right. out to be true. So they were like pre-bunking this thing. So it's just really dangerous road to go down. And my view on it is, I will defend your right to say things that I vehemently disagree with because it's really important in this country to have that pressure release valve where people feel like they can be heard, that they their point of view, even if it's a minority view, has a public airing and you can speak freely in the town square or the virtual town square. It's very important for us. Um, and, and by the way, very natural for tyrants. It's one of the first things they try to do, right, is to try to control speech. Um, and uh, get everybody to, to believe everything the, the regime believes in. But in this country, we're supposed to be different, and it's what makes part of the reason why America is an exceptional place. Well, and to that point, it seems to me that, you know, with the First Amendment prohibits government 
from infringing upon the free speech rights of Americans. And if the government gets to decide something is quote unquote disinformation or misinformation, they're choosing sides and they're yeah. the, they're the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong and what should be protected. Why is it dangerous for government to be put in that role? And also, why is it, isn't it okay for disinformation or misinformation to be protected by the First Amendment? It is protected by the First Amendment. Your thoughts? Yeah, look, uh, you don't have to be right to have an opinion. That's right. <laughs> I, I've learned that. My <laughs> wife, my wife tells me that all the time. So, so yeah, right. People <laughs> love that criticism of me, I'm sure. Uh, but you don't, but you also, uh, the government doesn't get to decide what the truth is. You know, right. we get to decide what the truth is. And, um, and again, so having as much information for people to make these decisions is very important. It's like sort of claiming this is the science. You know, the, the scientific method, you are constantly challenging assumptions. You're right. constantly pressing up against what has been previously accepted. This is what makes us better. This is what leads to a better outcome. This is what in a country as big and diverse as ours is how we get to some sort of consensus is when people feel like, and by the way, even if we don't, part of the, you know, it, that's okay. People get to have differing point of views. The government doesn't get to decide those things. And I think if you take a step back and understand where does that belief come from? It comes from the idea that we believe in this country, in the individual, we believe in individual souls. We believe that we're endowed by our creator with certain rights you can never take away. We don't get them from the government. We don't get them from a king or queen. We don't get them from some other sovereign. We're born with them. And chiefly among those is our ability to express ourselves, right? Which is what's protected in the First Amendment. And if you believe that, it's a very logical thing then to make sure that we'll do everything we can. The government, you know, it, it, it doesn't exist to protect our rights, you know, it doesn't exist to infringe upon those rights. The reason why you come together and create like we did, you know, and with our Constitution and we made this bold declaration of the world, the, the states agreed to give the government certain powers, limited powers, because, you know, and the rest were retained by the states. But what they were most one of the things they were most concerned about was, as they had seen in the rest of the world, was the government coming in and saying, this is the truth. This is what you can hear. This is what you can say. And then you look at the rest of the amendments in the Bill of Rights or some reflection of those concerns, too. Um, so anyway, I, it's just a very important issue to me. It's fundamental. It's foundational. And uh, and if you want to have a healthy republic um, where, again, people don't resort because a lot of places in the world, when people don't have the ability, they resort to violence. And a lot of these political disputes around the world are, are solved through violence. We don't believe that in this country. We believe that you have debate. You try to persuade um, you make the argument, you make the case, but if you're never able to do that, uh, it creates real, real problems for, for a country like ours. And so I think it's worth defending. Yeah, boy, it sure is so well put. And you, you're just, you've been a great, uh, policy champion on these issues on administrative state and certainly on uh, freedom of speech issues. Why is it important? Obviously the first amendment prohibits government from infringing upon, uh, our first amendment free speech rights. But uh, at the same time, it's important for Americans to have tolerance of one another as well, right? So that we, we learn from one another that uh, how important do you think that culture of tolerance of other people's viewpoints is to the survival of our republic and the First Amendment? 
Yeah, it's really important. I mean, and, and again, one of the one of the reasons why people came here, right? First was was religious tolerance, right? That right. that that people could practice their their religion freely and openly without risk of persecution. And you know, so all of these kind of fundamental things, you know, petition your government, all those, you know, those are all embodied in the First Amendment. And we believe that. And we believe that because again, um, we are those are the rights that that come from God. And I think that um Again, the, the ability to persuade, the, the willingness to be persuaded is all really important. I think sometimes it gets more difficult with technology now or people kind of sometimes in these silos and the most you know productive conversations often are had across the table from someone. Nobody's going to agree on everything. My wife and I don't agree on everything. Right. Um, that's OK, uh, but you should be willing to fight for your point of view. That's certainly been my, my record uh, in public life, willing to fight and take on things that you believe in. But having an open and honest dialogue is important and be 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 always be very uh, weary uh, or concerned or on guard for someone who tells you that they're going to uh, in order to protect your rights, they want to take your rights away. I think this is kind of what we're seeing now with with free speech or or during covid. Right. You saw this uh, this very authoritarian impulse to control things. And that's really what it's about. It's not about protecting people. It's about controlling. And, and I think the people are smart enough to make their own decisions. And like I said, I, I'm, I will um, willingly fight for somebody's ability to say something I don't agree with because that's their right to do so. Uh, it doesn't mean I have to agree with them. And it doesn't mean that that's how I have to vote necessarily if the people have entrusted me with, with the ability to come up here. But I think the willingness to listen is really important. And I do think it can diffuse a lot of the tensions that you see right now uh, in a country like ours. But again, listen, there's nothing new under the sun. This country's always dealt with big, important challenges we just got to hold on to the things that make us special and protecting people's right to speak their mind certainly is one of them. Yeah. Okay. Now, kind of the fun question, you represent the great state of Missouri. Uh, my my Aunt Dovey lived in Missouri. She lived to be 109 years old. And uh, she told me that they were going to have to shoot her on Resurrection Day because she felt so good. That's, that's how she used to describe. 109. How, wow. She, 109. she probably was the oldest living Missourian at one point at that age, <laughs> she, you know? She may have been. She lived down in Hermitage, Missouri. But tell us what's great about the state of Missouri. I love going to Missouri, but you tell us and sell us why it's such a great place. So I had um, somebody ask me one time, is Missouri a northern state, a southern state, a midwestern state or a western state? And I said, yes, uh, it's all of those things. <laughs> right. It is. It is really at the crossroads of the country. For a long time, presidential candidates, it was the ultimate bellwether. You've got this just incredible um, it's, it's a great state to get around. Like the boot heel in Southeast Missouri is, is sort of has more of a Southern temperament to it, right? Southwest Missouri feels and looks a little more like Texas and Oklahoma. Northern Missouri is like Iowa, Kansas city faces a little bit to the West and St. Louis faces a little bit to the East. You got everything and you've got all this sort of, um, uh, important things coming together. And it really is the heartland. If you want to understand what's really going on in the country. You talk to the good people in Missouri because they've got really good common sense and it's the show me state, right? So we're naturally skeptical of a government a thousand miles away telling us how to live our lives. And I'm pretty proud of that. So uh, it's been a, just an honor of a lifetime to come up here. I, you, know, you know, for me, I'm a sixth generation Missourian, German immigrants who came over and uh, uh, I was the first person in my family to go to college uh, out of high school and certainly the first lawyer in my family and to, to be representing the state that I love in the United States Senate is, is an honor of a lifetime. And I'm just so 
so proud of my state. It's uh, a lot of good, hardworking people who know right from wrong. That's absolutely right. Senator, thank you so much for being such a great policy champion. Thanks for joining us on the show. Anytime. Take care. Well, it's great to have someone like Senator Schmidt representing all of us, uh, obviously the people of Missouri, but having him make decisions in Washington gives us all a little bit of comfort. You know, this administrative state issue is gigantic. I mean, to, to be able to rein in the administrative state would make such a difference in the lives of Americans. And, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, whether it's fishermen or or anyone out there who is burdened by overregulation of the government. This could be a game changer. And, you know, championing free speech is something that we all need to do. So thanks for joining us on this episode. It was, again, great having the senator. I wish him the best. He's a great policy champion uh, for us in the United States Senate. Hey, thanks for joining us. Remember, liberty and freedom are so precious. Don't ever forget that. Go out there, fight and defend liberty and freedom. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com. Americanpotential.com.